We are in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a while, and we are exploring the central question at the heart of this Gospel, which is this, who is Jesus? That's what Mark's trying to answer. Who is Jesus? And he tells us up front, Jesus is the Son of God, but then takes us on a journey of what it's like to wrestle with asking that question and not being sure of the answer and even being confused by the answer. But the question I think we need to start asking ourselves is, do we even care? Are we still asking that question at all? Do we care about the implications of the answer, or has it just become an exercise of thinking? Uh, scientists, they've been speculating recently on the role of hunger in evolution. Hunger in evolution. And they, they want to know, this, how much does hunger play a role in our survival as a species? And they're not entirely sure. All I know for certain is that my hunger is certainly going to lead me to Chipotle after the service. And, uh, you know, hunger, it's this universal experience. It's a physical experience. Every single person on the planet is driven by this core need of having food. And yet, there's a universal experience of hunger that cannot be satisfied by food. You can call it man's search for meaning. You can call it an existential crisis. But everywhere throughout the planet... Humans are trying to make sense of their existence in some way, shape, or form. There's a hunger, a desire, a thirst to make sense of our lives and the place in which we find our lives to be. But I think we all feel this hunger, but after a while, answers don't work, or we feel disillusioned with the answers we had, or over time we've ignored it for so long that we don't even feel it anymore, and if we do feel it, we can't even identify what it is exactly we're feeling. So here's the big idea I want us to explore in our passage this morning. There is a hunger that only Jesus can satisfy. There is a hunger that only Jesus can satisfy, but there's also a hunger that only Jesus can expose. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles, they returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. They began to teach them many things. This is the setting of a story that we know pretty well. The feeding of the 5,000 is it's familiar. It's almost picturesque in our minds. You know, Jesus took his disciples away for a nice quaint picnic. You know, there's a red checkered uh, uh, picnic cloths and uh, rolling green hills, some friends, happy children, butterflies. You know, we've all seen the pictures. But let's put that image aside for a moment and try to see this story with fresh eyes. You know, in our passage last week, we considered how the apostles have a specific calling. They're called, one, to be with Jesus, and they're also called to be sent, to go out for Jesus. And in our passage last week, they're finally sent out. We see them living out the fullness of their calling. They've been with Jesus. They're sent out, even unprepared. They come now in return, and they're celebrating all that has happened as they've gone out and seen Jesus work in and through them, even as imperfect people. But now that they've returned, Jesus asks them to withdraw and rest with him because 
They had no leisure even to eat. We discover that the world Jesus is calling and sending us into is a very hungry world. And that this hunger is so great that we can spend our entire lives and not even put a dent into it. Just talk to any of the social workers in this room. And so Jesus, he withdraws with the apostles. The aim is to get some downtime. And so they sail to the other shore in Galilee. You know, so they're going away from the towns and the villages into the remote hill country of Galilee. But we can't imagine this as a peaceful and neutral uh, farmland. This was actually historically the hotbed of revolutionary resistance to the Roman imperial rule. This is the region, the remote hill country of Galilee, where all the freedom fighters were holed up and hiding out. This was the center, actually, of the zealot movement. And they stood for the violent overthrowing of the Roman Empire. This is who lived in this region. And so as Jesus and his disciples come from the other side of the lake to withdraw, more and more people find them, we're told. Literally, an enormous crowd is waiting for them in the middle of nowhere. The whole region turned out. Mark even tells us they ran there on foot from all of the towns. And when it says 5,000 men, it's likely that they're counting by household. So it could be upwards of 15,000 to 20,000 people actually there. But it could also mean that just the men showed up. Because why were they there in the middle of nowhere? Even if they're running from nearby places, why were they there? John, in his gospel account, chapter 6, verse 15, he makes explicit what Mark just hints at. They came to make Jesus a king by force. This was the place where everyone wanted a revolutionary leader. They want a revolution. That's the setting of the feeding of the 5,000. It's not a picnic. It's a revolution. And Jesus, he sees this great crowd. He knows their desires. He sees all of it, and he has compassion on them. Why? Look at verse 34. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. We need to stay in this image for a bit because it's significant in Scripture. First, we need to go to Numbers chapter 27. Uh, Moses, the great leader of Israel, his life is coming to an end. It's time to transition, to pass on his leadership. And so he prays. God, provide a great leader for our nation so they won't be as sheep without a shepherd. You see, while Moses was a great spiritual leader, we often forget to see that he was also a political and military leader. And so when he's praying for someone to come and lead God's people, he's actually praying for this great spiritual, political, and military leader. And that's why it's fulfilled in Joshua, who then leads Israel in claiming the land of Canaan. So when Jesus looks at the crowd, he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He knows what they're after. They want another great political leader like Moses or Joshua to lead a revolution. He knows they want to make him king by force. And he knows they think they know what they need to meet their hunger. But when Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd, this isn't like a, oh, poor sheep, I'll be your shepherd, I'll step up. This is serious business. My parents, they often tell me the knife story from when I was growing up. I have no recollection of this, so you just have to trust their account. Uh, One weekend, when I was around two, my dad went away, and my mom left him with me. She took my sister and 
And uh, everything was going well, my dad claims. And he said, you know, I was being so well behaved, which was uncommon, uh, that he would try to squeeze in a hockey game. The thing is, this was during the Gretzky era, right? So my dad really got pulled into the hockey and kind of abandoned little Alistair to fend for himself. And I found my way into the kitchen, uh, apparently, and took uh, a butcher's knife off the counter and then went out the back door and went for a walk down the neighborhood in my diaper with a butcher's knife. Can you imagine? <laughs> and uh, an old lady found me, only probably like two blocks down the street, and, and recognized me, so picked me up, you know, took the knife away, and knocked on my dad's door, put me on, said, I believe this is yours. Uh, you know, this was the story of my life and why I need Jesus, but uh, a child without a supervisor. You don't look at an unsupervised child with a knife and think, oh, that's cute. Let's see what happens. You know, it's a moment away from becoming a disaster. Sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, God, he laments. He laments through his prophet that his people are like sheep without a shepherd, that all of their leaders, spiritual, political, or military, have abandoned them and sought their own selfish desires, that they haven't cared for God's people, that they've actually been lying to God's people and leaving them for themselves so that God's people are vulnerable, weak, hungry, and alone. But what's underscored in that passage is that God's people, when they are sheep without a shepherd, are hungry. They're hungry. Sheep without a shepherd, left to their own, are hungry. And the problem is that when we're left in our hunger, we can start to confuse what we want with what we need. When we've been abandoned or disillusioned or when we're without good leadership, we can sense our discontentment. We can sense our frustration, but sometimes it's, it's hard to name it. We know we're hungry, but we can't name what we're hungry for. This is the point of no return in any marriage. Julia and I know this very well. If we both get to the point where we are so hungry, but we don't know what we're hungry for, who knows that feeling? You're so hungry, but you don't know what you're hungry for. And the person suggests Chipotle for the hundredth time. Like, meltdown. Like, that We just, I can name that I'm hungry. Julia can name that she's hungry, but we don't know what we want. We're just hungry. And the people out there in the wilderness with Jesus, they know they want change. They know they want a revolution. They know they want better leaders, a leader who will lead them to God and create a better society for Israel. And they want this revolutionary leader to liberate them from their oppression. But they don't know exactly what they want. And the wrong leader will leave them even hungrier and disillusioned. They want a political leader. They want a revolution. They want the next Moses and Joshua. They want a violent overthrowing of the government. They're hungry and they want it to be satisfied. But if they try to make Jesus into that sort of leader, they will not be satisfied. Because the hunger goes deeper still. They just can't see it yet. Because what they need is far more revolutionary than what they want. It's far more revolutionary than anything they've imagined. Sheep without a shepherd, they can feel a hunger. They just don't know that it goes deeper. Because only a good shepherd can take us deeper. That's the same for us. It is the same for us. Of course, in our time and place, uh, the closest thing we've actually felt to hunger is hangry. You know, and you, you're, you're just angry. You're not actually hungry. You're just inconvenienced. You're hangry. 90% of the time when Julia and I fight is because 
one of us is hungry. You know, hungry. The other 10% of the time is just because I'm wrong. Uh, but in our day and age, hunger is something mild. It's an inconvenience. It's not life or death for us in our context. This is totally different in the ancient world. But if we make this passage solely about physical hunger, we miss it. We miss it. Because the hunger, it's deeper for us too. And when we start to feel this deeper hunger, we often misdiagnose it. We're sensing a deeper hunger. You know, when we are dissatisfied and we think, I, I need something to fix this feeling. I can't name what it is exactly, but I need something or someone or anything. You might be in a relationship and you get to the point where you're looking at your partner and you're thinking, is this it? Like, really? The guy in the red shirt? This is who I married? Am I settling? Where's the spark? Am I missing out? That's possible. And if you're not married, you might be at the point where it's time to change your relationship. But if you're beginning to feel dissatisfied with stability and normality, it's usually because there's a deeper hunger in your life that is not being met. Or often we pursue big dreams and goals and we think, once I get there, then I'll be satisfied. And there's nothing wrong with chasing after the dreams that we have in our lives. There's nothing wrong with going and getting educated and believing that that'll help you uh, pursue your dreams. But if you can't even find contentment in the pursuit, maybe it's because there's a deeper hunger that isn't actually being met. Maybe your hunger is bigger still. Or maybe you have everything in this room. You know, you've got money to spend, you've got friends to see, you have a life to enjoy. But when it comes to being alone, you can't do it. You can't do it. You get on the phone, you're texting, or you're watching Netflix, or you go out, you keep yourself busy, uh, you watch pornography, you masturbate, you drink, whatever it is not to be alone, to be doing something. And maybe that's because there's a, a hunger that isn't actually being met in your life. You know, for some of you, though, this just doesn't resonate at all. You don't need religion or spirituality. You're not particularly against it or for it. You're here. You just don't really care, though. You're not hungry because you're satisfied with life, and you see no need, no want, no desire. You, you think you're content, but if this is the case, maybe you've confused complacency with satisfaction. It's possible that you've just got really good at pushing down the hunger whenever it comes up to the point that you rarely feel it at all. And so that your default is if even you feel a twinge of it, you just push it down. You're complacent. You're not satisfied. You're ignoring it or numbing it. You see, we've all sensed this deeper hunger in some capacity. We all know its shape and its form, even if we can't explicitly name what this hunger is for. We know that we're hungry. We just don't know what we're hungry for. And so we try and we try and we try all these things. We try to feed ourselves thinking that's what I must want. That's what I must need. But we don't actually know. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus, it says, he sees the great crowd. He's aware of what's going in their hearts. He knows their desires. He knows their discontentment. He knows their hunger. And what does Mark tell us? Jesus felt compassion. Don't forget that. When you're feeling discontent, when you're feeling hungry, when you're feeling like, isn't there more to this life? Jesus doesn't look at you and say, like, come on, why don't you have it together? He looks at you and says, compassion. 
is not how he wants us to be. He has compassion. And so what does he do? In verse 34, it's a little shocking. It's a little weird. It's a little underwhelming because Jesus knows they want a revolutionary leader. Jesus knows they have this deep, unidentified hunger. But then Mark tells us that he just begins to teach. He just teaches for a long time. He preaches the word. And that's how Jesus responds. You see, he's disavowing the zealot model, which is if we want to overthrow this regime change, it comes with death. And Jesus says, no, I came to bring life. I come to bring liberation. And so he teaches and he teaches. And Mark tells us that it grows late. It gets late so that their physical hunger actually becomes an issue. It can't be ignored any longer. And so Jesus has been giving his word and now he's going to give bread. Word and bread. So look at verses 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Five and two fish. In other words, not nearly enough to meet their hunger. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate. And were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Why bread? Like if Jesus is going to perform a miracle, why a miracle that could easily be explained away? Like they were just stashing a bunch of bread. It's, it's not an impressive miracle, really. Why multiply bread? Why didn't Jesus just fly up into the air and be like, greetings, minions? You know, like, this would be a miracle that is more convincing, more explainable. Why this miracle? Which leads to the question, could the miracle have happened even at all? And I love the way Tim Keller puts this. He's a pastor in New York. He says, Christ's miracles were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. They were a reminder of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again. A world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. You see, Keller's saying that the miracles are actually the most natural thing people have ever witnessed. Because it's there we're seeing the world as it was meant to be. It's the natural world that we call that's actually unnatural. Broken. Confused. But again, why bread? Because, you know, when most of us look at bread, you know what we think? Carbs. That's what we think. We think carbs. Or we think, is it gluten-free? Will it harm me? In case you're wondering, St. Peter's bread is gluten-free. Uh, but back then, there wasn't so many options in food. Back then, you didn't always know where your next meal was coming from. So what was the symbolic meaning of bread? Life. Bread was life. You see, he knows the crowd. He knows they want a revolutionary leader. 
He knows they're open to a violent overthrowing of the government, that it will involve death. But he doesn't come to deal out death. He comes to deal out bread. He comes to deal out life. He comes to deal out satisfaction. He comes to meet our deepest hunger. And that's the question. We can trace the contours of our deep hunger, but what is it? Life. We want life. We want a better quality of life. We want to eradicate injustice. We long for these things. We want a lasting life. We want good medicine. We want to eradicate sickness. We want to increase lifespan. We want a compassionate life because we know that despite all of our efforts, we're still going to die. We want life, and so we're doing everything we can to create a better environment, a more hospitable environment for life in this world. We long for it. And what Jesus is saying, you have this hunger in you, deeper than the physical hunger, a hunger that only I can satisfy. You have a hunger for bread itself, but that won't fill you. And if you don't get this emptiness filled in you, filled by me, We'll starve forever. You have a deeper hunger, a hunger for more than bread alone. You need me. Think about Jesus in the temptation narrative in Matthew's gospel. He's speaking to the devil, Matthew 4, 4. And what does he say? Quotes Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or in John 6, 48 through 50, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Remember, manna was a supernatural gift from God. They ate this heavenly food and yet they still died. This is the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the bread of life so that you may eat of it and not die. Jesus is saying you need more than bread alone. You need me. And we can sense that. We can begin to feel that shape. He's saying, that's, that's a desire for me. The atheist, uh, Jean-Paul uh, Sartre, he has this little proverb that I think is very interesting. He says, that God does not exist, I cannot deny. This is his thought, an atheist. But that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. He says, I don't believe in God, but I'm hungry for God. And this gives shape to the deeper hunger we feel. We desire to be fed by God, but we wonder, can we find him? And Jesus stands in front of us and he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm what you're hungering for. You see the people in the wilderness, they're standing in front of Jesus. They want this revolution. But what Jesus is offering is far more revolutionary than anything they've imagined. He's actually coming to inaugurate the new exodus, the new way of salvation for God's people. This time, God isn't just going to liberate and free them from oppressive governments. God is liberating them from sin and death, sickness and illness. This time, the promised land isn't the geographical region of uh, the Canaanites. It's the new heavens and the new earth. This time, the revolutionary leader will be a king forever because he's the son of God. And this time, the new covenant is so much better because he will remember our sins no more. See, they came out into the, the wilderness looking for a political leader for a regime change, and, and Jesus says, I'm changing the cosmos. 
And it starts with you. I'm here first to satisfy your hunger. But here's the thing. If the bread remains whole, if the bread remains whole, we die. The bread has to be broken in order for us to live. Bread has to be broken in order for us to live. Look again at verse 41. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. You notice that pattern? Blessed, broke, gave. Shows up one more time in Mark's gospel. Exact same pattern, same word. You know where? Chapter 14, when Jesus institutes the sacrament of communion. What does it say? 14.22, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them. You see, the bread that Jesus offers us is his life, his life given for us, his body given for us, his blood shed for us. And Jesus, it shows us, this is all for us. He's offering himself as a substitute. You see, and there on the cross, this is where this is all heading in Mark's gospel. On the cross, the bread of life is given for us so we can live because he's dying in our place. He's forgiving sins. He's reconciling us to God. He's absorbing our sins so that when God looks at us, he remembers our sins no more. And what's powerful about the bread of life who comes to bless and break and give is that it satisfies and that it's not about anything we can do. It's been done. And when that gets into your bones, that you understand that you can't save yourself, that God has done everything to bless you and give you life and fulfill that desire that you cannot fulfill on your own, to forgive what you cannot forgive. It satisfies. That hunger, it satisfies. And so the first question is, have you tasted that? Have you ever tasted Jesus' blessing and breaking and giving himself to you to satisfy this deep hunger that you carry with you throughout your life? Have you ever been satisfied by him? But the other question, the other question is, how would you know if you have been? How would you know that you've experienced his grace? Well, when the deeper hunger is satisfied, it changes everything, people. It changes everything everything. Because we're no longer looking to fulfill something in us that can't be fulfilled out there. We're no longer thinking that if I can just succeed more or be more, that then I'll be content. No, because we know we're accepted. We know we're beloved. We know that we're secure. It changes the way we live our entire lives. And our lives begin to take a different shape. For example, because we've been forgiven We extend radical forgiveness. Because we've been welcomed, we become incredibly hospitable. Because God is compassionate and extends compassion to us, we become more compassionate. Because Jesus, he didn't just die as our substitute, he also died as our example. But the only way we can follow his example is by trusting in what he's done for us. And so we abandon ourselves to him and live more and more like him. But what does this look like? Think about the apostles. He challenges them. He says, meet this hunger. 
He forces them to come up against something they can't possibly overcome. Remember, they're running on empty. They haven't had time to eat themselves. They don't even have enough food for their own crew. And Jesus is saying, feed all these people. He's making them recognize the impossibility of the task at hand. They can't do it, but this is what we don't want to miss. Jesus uses what isn't enough. He uses what's insignificant compared to the need out there. And he makes it more than enough. You see, he uses the apostles to distribute his bread. They play a part, but only after they've come face to face with the impossible. And think about verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. They end with more than they started with, people. Jesus, he's not frugal with the life that he's come to offer. He offers abundance. There will be leftovers. Leftovers don't mean much to us. They're usually just a sign of our guilt of not wanting to throw it away immediately. But with Christ in the ancient world, leftovers? They didn't have refrigerators. It would spoil. It means there's more people to bless. There's enough for more people to be blessed. And then the 12 would have been significant. Each of the apostles would have said, there's enough for me to go. So how do we know if, he's at, if we're actually participating in what Jesus has for us? First, when the task before us feels impossible. When you look at God, you look at what you have, you say, I have X, Y, and Z, I can't do it. God says, good, you're ready. And he'll use that discontent, that worry, that fear, that it's just too big of a task to bless us, to stir us. And you, you might immediately know what that is for you. You know in your life, like this thing, I'm supposed to do it. I don't have what it takes. That's where you start. For others, though, it, it doesn't mean it has to be this big, crazy dream. I know we're coming out of the past 15 years where movement was the thing. Go and change the world. Start your own company. That might be you, and that's good, and it might be impossible without God. But for some of you, the impossible thing is forgiving your mother or father or whoever it is. And you know God has been asking you time and time again, forgive them. And you say, I can't. I don't have it in me. It's impossible. It's a good place to start. For you, it might be staying exactly where you are that feels impossible. Investing time into a relationship that doesn't seem like it's moving anywhere or staying in your workplace and believing that God really does want to renew all areas of life. For you, the impossible task might actually be staying exactly where you are and following Jesus there. And you're like, you look at that, and you say, that just seems impossible. I'm so discontent. And Jesus says, that's, that's a good starting place. Because he wants to meet us in the impossible task. Why? So in the same way of being saved by depending on him, we live out our lives by depending on him. You see, we're saved by faith, and we live by faith. And he brings us to these impossible tasks so that we continue to depend upon him over and over again. And so you know you've experienced the satisfaction that Jesus offers when you start to face impossible tasks and they lead you to him. And you say, without you, I can't do this, Lord. So I need to walk with you. I need you to give me your authority. I need you to do this through me. But the other marker is this. We know we're living in the satisfaction that Jesus has for us 
when compassion so wells up in us that we want to bless others. You know you've experienced what Jesus came to offer when you are no longer the center of your universe. That you desire to bless others, to see Christ given to them, to see others satisfied in their hunger. The beauty is Jesus, he gives himself in abundance. There will be leftovers. There is enough of him to go around. He's not stingy with the life he wants to offer. And I fear, I fear that sometimes we don't have a big enough vision of the sort of life available to us as Christians. The primary mark, people, is joy. Not a pretend joy, but a joy that is true even in our suffering. How is that possible? Because we know no matter what happens, nothing can take away this satisfaction. The satisfaction of Christ being given to us entirely. The satisfaction of the God of the universe loving us so much, wanting to bless us so much that he would give and give and give and give his only son. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Because I see hungry people. I'm hungry. Where are you going for food? 